Well, Major League season is upon us again. And as usual, there are all kinds of expectations about how the Blue Jays are going to do. And that happens every year. It's been a great build-up and they got off to a good start so far. Although they dropped the game with the Red Sox last night. But hopefully, it will not prove to be anticlimactic come September, August or September. This has happened so many, many times. But we certainly hope not. But... Baseball is that kind of a game as so many others. I remember the 1986 World Series, for example. Uh, the Red Sox were in the World Series of rarity in those days uh, and since for that matter. And they were playing the Mets. And it was uh, game one of the World Series. And Roger Clemens was just a new guy, uh, hot off the press for the Red Sox. And he was batched up against Dwight Gooden, the great uh, Mets uh, preach, uh, pitcher, I should say. And they were anticipating an amazing game. <laughs> well, it turned out to be a complete anticlimactic dud because both of them got chased out by the second innings. And I don't even remember what happened after that. Anticlimax is a part of life. But what if we already were able to anticipate an anticlimax? Well, how would you do that, you would say? Well, the Sunday after Easter is a perfect example for me. I mean, Easter is the high point in the life of the church, right? I mean, our whole faith rides on that fact, correctly so. If Christ is not risen from the dead, our faith is in vain. There would be no church, no Bible, if there hadn't been the resurrection of Jesus. And churches pull out all the stops when it comes to putting on the Easter service. The sermon turns out to be one of the best. The attendance is a maximum. Musical efforts go off the top. There used to be cantatas many years ago on the Sunday evening and whatnot. Well, what do you do the Sunday after? It's bound to be anticlimactic, right? What does the preacher do? How does he choose a text for the Sunday after Easter? And by the way, you should know that this is the third year in a row where I have been invited to preach somewhere the Sunday after Easter. I wonder whether that's deliberate. I don't know. But seriously, uh, what are your expectations on the Sunday after Easter? If you're even here, for that matter. Are there any guidelines that are someone like me has in choosing a text. Should you be thinking about something? Well, actually the scriptures give us some guidelines. <coughs> Those of you who are familiar with the scriptures would know that the Apostle Paul was an early church leader. In one of the letters that he wrote to a small church in, in Greece, modern day Corinth, uh, he has 57 verses in one chapter talking about the resurrection. And he finishes with these verses in verse 58 of chapter 15. He says, Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Well, talk about a climactic ending. Where is he going to go from there? After having telling us, therefore, because of these 57 verses that I've talked to you about Jesus, his resurrection, what it means for the present, what it means for the future. Therefore, he says, give yourself fully, always abounding to the work of the Lord because you know nothing that you ever do is going to be wasted. Uh, he's setting us up. And by the way, what a great text for our series coming up. Made new to renew. What is he going to talk about? <laughs> Obviously, that has to be the climax, right? Well... Chapter 16, verse 1, and there are no verse divisions in Paul's original letter. After this rousing call to action in the light of the resurrection and the newness of life, you know what he says? Now about the collection for the Lord's people. Money. Oh, you got to say, Sundar, come on. 
you tell me you're going to talk. You were right. This is anticlimactic. You got to be kidding. It's a subject nobody likes. If you're a visitor today, it immediately conjures up all the worst images that you might have of televangelists manipulating audiences to make more money to finance their luxurious lifestyle. If you're a Christ follower, you're probably screaming. You're probably thinking already, how much is this going to cost me? And as preachers, money is at the top of the list of topics nobody likes to speak about. Yet it is ubiquitous in scripture. I didn't do the counting myself, but somebody said there are about 500 verses in the Bible on faith and 500 verses on prayer and 2,000 verses of money. 16 out of the 38 parables, the stories that Jesus told to illustrate truth, timeless truth, have to do with the subject of money. And one out of every three verses in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the three gospels that detail a history. John, the other gospel is a theological reflection. One out of every six verses there has to do with money. So it kind of begs the question, why? When we're talking about made new to be renewed, why would that topic be so? Why did Paul go there first? You see, it has to do with freedom. So often we get the purpose of commandments all wrong. Imagine a family that is expecting a new baby. One of the first rooms they decorate is the nursery. Visitors are shown the crib and the curtains and the toys and the cushions and whatnot. Now imagine what would happen or how you would feel about a family that first built the entire nursery and said, oh, now this nursery and these teddy bear toys and these beautiful curtains need somebody to play with them. So I think we will have a child. You know that something is completely messed up. It's the other way around. The child comes first and the toys are made for the sake of the child. The child is not made for the sake of the toys. Now, if that's true for us in our act of creation, what about God when it comes to creating us? Did God create you and me because he had these wonderful set of commandments, including the commandments that make us miserable, specifically the commandment that has to do with giving money, did God develop this commandment and say, now I need to make somebody whom I can order to give me money so that I can be miserable? Well, you don't say it in that many words, but we often think like that. But what if it were the other way around? What if God made human beings like you and me? And because he wanted us to have an abundant, joyful life, he gave us these commandments. In fact, throughout the scriptures, the commandments are spoken of as that which brings life and blessing to us. And it is true when it comes to money. And the reason why it is so intimately connected with life is because we are held captive by a tyrant called the tyranny of things in our life. And if we're going to experience life the way Sawyer laid it out for us last week, where the future hope of the resurrection is brought into the present to transform us and set us free from things that have led us to bondage from the past. This is a primary area. If we don't experience freedom and new life in this area, we're held in the grip of a tyrant. And so I want us to understand that a little bit and awaken us to this tyrant. First thing about this tyrant is that this tyrant promises. Money promises, but never delivers. 
You know, they did a very interesting survey asking people, how much money do you need to be really happy? They surveyed people whose annual income was $20,000 a year all the way to people who made $200,000 a year. And you know, in, interestingly, no matter where they were on that income spectrum, every one of them mentioned a number that was twice as large as what they were making at that moment. Because you see, money promises, but it never, never delivers what it promised. That's because we are subject to something called the law of diminishing marginal returns. We invest a certain amount to get a certain amount of happiness. In this case, it happens to be dopamine that is released into our brain to make us feel good. Whether we buy a nice steak with that money or whether we buy the latest camera with our money or the latest computer. But the next time, you have to spend a little bit more to get the same hit. There's desensitization that takes place. Eventually, you spend a whole lot to get very, very little. That's why, by the way, we always have so much more excitement in the chase than in actually getting the stuff. When you're buying a new car or a new camera, imagine all the research that you do, pouring over all the magazines, stopping in in every little show uh, or display room to try the car, what it looks like. Uh, you look, imagine the colors and you do a little bit of research on how much money you can afford and what options you can put in there. You uh, read user reports in the internet. And you get it and you drive it off the parking lot. You've already lost $3,000 the moment you cross the parking lot. Depreciation has kicked in. But then very quickly, how long does that last? In fact, manufacturers are so good at this stuff, they build in what is called obsolescence. They actually plan design. Believe it or not, when iPhone 14 is launched, they already have 15, 16, 17, and 18 in their mind. And parts of 14 are going to be built in such a way that you will lose satisfaction very quickly after it and start thinking about 15, 16, and 17. It's built in obsolescence. That's part of it. This is the tyranny that we are in. And the whole advertising industry is geared to sow discontent. As a story that is told in about a multinational corporation that had a factory in South America, and the locals that came to work there, they got their first paycheck in two weeks, and they didn't come back after that. But that two weeks' money was more than enough to satisfy all their needs. How were they going to have these people come back? You know what they hit upon? This is not a joke. This actually happened. They decided to build a, uh, print a catalog. They printed a catalog with pictures of all the things that they make and that they can buy. And they distributed these catalogs free. They had no trouble bringing people back into work after that. The whole point is to create dissatisfaction, to sow this discontent. So the built-in obsolescence, the law of diminishing marginal returns, and the advertising industry all combine to work together to just keep tighten and tighten and tighten that grip of a tyrant upon life. So it promises but never delivers. It sows seeds of discontent. It damages relationships. You have a boss, you expect to get a certain raise, and you either don't get a raise, or you get a lot less. What does that do to your relationship with your boss? And when you take that news back home to your spouse who's expecting and hoping for you to get a raise so he or she can get something else, they start getting angry at you. What about people to whom you owe money? Are you really looking forward to seeing them again and having a great dinner meal with them? Or do you avoid them as much as possible? What about times when wills are read? Oh my goodness. <laughs> who gets what? 
arguments at a time when they are grieving the loss of someone or they should be. Survivors get into arguments and difficulties and sometimes even fisticuffs. We weigh and believe that time is money and so we spend an entire lifetime sacrificing relationships to make more money. But when it comes near the end of their life, how many people do you know who say on their deathbed, I wish I had spent more time at work? Or do they say, I wish I had spent more time in my relationships? So this is what the tyranny of, the, of things do, does in our life. It promises but never delivers. It sows seeds of discontent. It damages relationships. And finally, it impoverishes the human spirit. Somebody that my wife knew quite well, Every September, her father would start getting serious stomach aches. In the beginning, they didn't know what was wrong. They checked him out to see if there were ulcers or other kinds of problems in there. And they discovered none of that. There was nothing wrong with him physiologically until the truth came out. I can't remember how they found out. But come September, he started thinking about the money he would have to spend to buy gifts for members of his family. And that would precipitate literal stomach aches. His spirit had so shrunk that the body was beginning to react at the very thought of having to spend money. And this was not a man who didn't have money. That's the tyrant that we're in the grip of. No wonder new life requires us to be renewed in this particular dimension. Paul was knows exactly what he was talking about. Now, here's the other problem. Though we are in the grip of this tyrant called things, we're not aware of it. We often react like some of Jesus' disciples when Jesus said, you are enslaved to sin. They said, we're not anybody's slaves. We are a free people. We descended from Abraham, our father. They didn't know that they were in bondage. And so the first thing God has to do is to awaken us to the fact. There is this thing called the tyranny of things. The awaken, And that's where the commandment to give comes. We're not going to reach for the new life if we don't even know we are dead and we need it. And so the first thing the commandment does is to awaken us to the fact that we're in the grip of the time. There's a story told in the Bible. Jesus told a story about a rich ruler who came to Jesus and said, uh, I've kept all these commandments from the time I was young. What must I do to get eternal life? And eternal life for him didn't mean going to heaven someday. Eternal life basically meant in the age to come. For the Jews, all of time was divided into two parts, the present age and the age to come. Eternal life meant, will I get to be part and play my part in the new age to come when creation would have reached its culmination, and history would have reached its culmination. And so Jesus told him to keep the command, uh, keep this, 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 you know, the he said, I've kept them all, I've kept them all. But he said, oh, Jesus said, okay, good, you kept all the commandments, you only need one more thing, sell everything you have and give to the poor and follow me. It says, at this point, the rich young ruler his heart sank and he went away sad because he had lots. That commandment awakened him to the fact that something had a tight hold upon him. And you know, I realized that experientially for the first time, way back in 1985, when we were first saving up on personal computers. You remember two floppy disks? <laughs> that was amazing. If you could have a computer with two floppy disks, <laughs> I was just, you had to keep switching things in and out. 360K was the capacity of a floppy disk in those days. Well, I was saving up money for my first computer. And one morning I was out in a conference run where my wife was singing and I was out 
walking, having my prayer time in the morning. I love to walk and pray in the summers. Really rejoicing, praising God, feeling close and connected to him. When out of nowhere, this thought came to my mind. Why don't you just take that money that you saved for the computer and give it away? I wasn't a rich young ruler. My heart sank. At that moment, I realized what that rich young ruler story was all about. He went away sad. So whether it was for lots of money or for a little bit of money that I was saving up for a computer, the commandment served its purpose of awakening me to the fact that it was the time. Now what I actually ended up doing is beside the point. What is important is that the first function of the commandment is to awaken us to that fact. I mean, it is shown by how you react. Did you start rubbing your hands in glee and say, oh, goody, he's going to preach about money today. No, no one says that way. The very fact that we react like that and wish he would be talking about something else reveals to us the fact that we are in the grip of a time. So the first purpose that God gives this commandment, that Paul moves to the commandment right away, I want to talk to you about the collection, guys. It's to awaken us to the fact that we are in the grip of this tyrant who promises but never delivers, who sows seeds of discontent, who damages relationships and impoverishes the spirit. Now, after we become aware of the tyranny of things in our life, how do we get free? How do we break the tyrant's power? And that's by actually obeying the commandment. The commandment awakens us to the tyranny of things, but giving, obeying the commandment is what actually breaks the grip of the tyrant in our life. Because it is as we give, initially as an act of obedience, now that we understand that I'm in, in the grip of a tyrant and I need to be set free, and I really, and Jesus came to set me free in this area so that I might have that abundant life that he promised. It is as we begin to give that we slowly begin to break the grip of the tyrant. There is no other way to do it. You can't analyze your way out of this. You understand that there is a tyranny of things. You understand that you are in the grip of a tyrant. And it is as you start obeying God's purposes and giving us that command begin to function and we begin to experience freedom. Because you begin to experience enduring joy. Fred Smith was a Christian businessman in Dallas who gave quite a bit of his money. He was a well-to-do businessman. He was successful. He gave quite a bit of his money. And then there was a market went through a very significant crash. And he lost a lot of money. And some of his friends came to him and said, do you now regret giving away all that money? His response was amazing. He said, are you kidding? He said, the only money I didn't lose in the crash was the money that I gave away. I lost everything else. And on a very different level, I heard about an international worker who loved books, but she was so careful with her books that she wouldn't loan them to everybody. Every now and then she might be persuaded to loan a few of them. She kept them all in a box underneath her bed. One night she was woken up by the scratching kind of a sound. She wasn't quite sure where that was coming from and she got up from bed and searched and couldn't find anything and she traced that gnawing sound to underneath her bed. And when she opened her box of beloved books, she found that gnats, rats and termites had gnawed away at every book that was there. The only books that still survived were the books she had loaned, not the books that she owned. Two very different kind of examples. 
But it is by obeying the commandment to give that we begin to experience enduring joy. And that's why Paul says, he said specifically, now about the collection for the Lord's people. On the first day of every week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income. What was this collection all about? Well, Paul was preaching to Gentile churches, the non-Jewish churches, and the Jewish church back in Jerusalem was experiencing a lot of poverty. They had famine and there was persecution and all kinds of things. And so even though the Gentile non-Jewish churches that Paul was preaching to weren't incredibly wealthy because most of the first responders to the gospel came from the lower classes of society, at least economically speaking. But whatever he had, he said he was getting the collection ready. He called it the collection. It was for the sake of the poor church in Jerusalem from all these Gentile churches. And that's what the collection was all about. It was in the context of ministry to the poor. And so it is right now. This COVID season that we're in, even though we've come out of it in terms of all the restrictions and whatnot, the economic implications of it is still going to continue for a while. The people who've been the hardest hit from the lower socioeconomic levels are still remaining hardest hit. This is a season, this is God's season, God's economy for sowing and reaping by generosity to those who, do, who lack very much. And God gave us a beautiful privilege, most, most during COVID time. Someone that my wife befriended many, many years ago, over 20 years ago, happened to see her at a winner's store right in the dead of winter trying on some clothes for herself. And she just happened to look at my wife and said, how do I look? And Sham spoke to her and talked to her about it and then saw her dressed in very elegant high-heeled shoes. He said, what's the occasion? She said, well, I'm, I'm actually my son is being dedicated. And so my wife had a good conversation with her about her own spiritual life, discovered that in her own word that she was not really walking with God. Anyway, that started a wonderful friendship. She said, you can't walk in the snow in those high-heeled shoes. Let me take you home in the car. And this woman was very poor. She was in this country illegally. Uh, she had been impregnated by a man who then left and walked away and she had this little baby. And she said, I want to be able to work to provide for him. And so she started working for us and we introduced her to other people as well. And that began a 20, 22 year relationship with this woman. And during COVID, she couldn't work in many places. So Sham and I, God put upon our heart, we can't bless the millions of poor in this world, but there's one poor person right before our eyes. And God gave us a beautiful opportunity throughout the COVID season to practice this kind of additional generosity. And who have been the beneficiary? This woman was an amazing woman of prayer. And the number of times she has prayed for us and our family as she was doing the work. And when she would be singing, when she'd be working, she'd be singing all the time while she was working. Our house would be filled with worship while she was singing all through the time. It was a, she, we were giving or were we getting back from her? This is the kind of stuff that God is talking about, the freedom that comes. And we experience these multifaceted kinds of joy as we actually dare to trust God, that he didn't give us the commandments to make us miserable, but having created us, having promised abundant life for us, he said, these commandments will awaken them to the grip of being a tyrant and as they continue to obey me because I am good and I can be trusted to give them what is good, they will experience joy. So, as I kind of draw this message to a close and land the plane as my son is fond of saying when he's preaching, 
Let me just give you some specific challenges. Some of you are not followers of Jesus. And you say, whoa, why did I land in church today to be told about this? Well, listen, let me tell you something. I read a story many years ago by a woman named Rebecca Pippert. She was a follower of Jesus who worked on the campuses and she worked on the campus at Oregon State University, which then and now is considered to be one of the most uh, hostile campuses as far as faith issues are concerned. And she was talking to a young woman who didn't know Jesus, but was interested. And so she gave her an interesting challenge. She said, here, if you want to know whether Jesus is real or not, and there is something substantial to this life of faith that I've been talking about, she said, let me give you a challenge. She said, read the Gospels. And the Gospels, there are four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, you know, there are four biographies of the life of Jesus told from, told from different angles and different circumstances, make up one composite story. She said to her, read, read the Gospel of Jesus until you find, until you sense Jesus telling you to do something. Doesn't matter what it is. And you don't have to do it until you sense that maybe Jesus is actually telling you to do this or this Jesus that you're reading about, even if you're not even sure that he exists. And just do that and see what happens. So this girl thought, you know what, that's a reasonable challenge. And so she started doing that. And so one day in the middle of this experiment, she had gone to a library and she was studying and she had a little carol. They call it a carol where people go and study in universities. And she had this place, favorite place all set out for her. And she saw someone come. And that person was looking for a carol and was all full. She didn't know this person at all. She wasn't exactly the kind of person with a dynamic personality that you'd be attracted to anything. But all of a sudden she said, I felt Jesus telling me, give up, give up your carol to her. So that was the deal she made. She got up and gave this carol. And her testimony later was, she said, in that instant, I knew that what I was reading in the Gospels was true. Not because of logic, but an act of obedience to a clear commandment opened the door to a kind of illumination that she wasn't even aware of. And by the way, just so you think this is an isolated example, many years ago when I was regularly ministering in my own church, one Sunday, I felt led to tell that story and give a challenge to some people who were not followers of Jesus. To my absolute amazement, a few weeks later, a young woman came to me and she said, I was in your congregation a few weeks ago and you told us that story, so I decided to take you up on that challenge. And I did. Jesus spoke to me. I obeyed him. I'm here to tell you that I'm a follower of Jesus now. So if you happen to be one of those, why not? Why not take a first step and start giving? And you don't have to give to this church or any other church for that matter if you're not sure how Christians are going to use the money. Find a cause. Something specific that can alleviate the condition of hurting poor people. And there are many of those in our society. Give more than you've given before, whatever that is. Because you want to take Jesus at face value. See what happens. That's a, that's a simple challenge I want to leave with those of you who have not followed Jesus. And for many of you, most of you who are followers of Jesus, I want to take you back to that text because he says something specific. He says, on the first day of the week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income. <laughs> Now, we often skip over that in keeping with your income because if we've been a follower of Jesus for a while, we kind of automatically say, oh, yeah, you know what? I'm supposed to give 10%. Tithing, we call it. Now, most, many people don't. In fact, the average amount of donations that Christ followers in North America give is about 2.6%. One-fourth the tithe. 
But it's interesting that if you study the New Testament carefully, you will find that tithing is hardly mentioned as a standard. In fact, what he says is, each one of you to, should set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income. That means the New Testament is encouraging us not to percentage giving, but to proportional giving. In other words, the larger the amount of money and resources that God blesses us with, the greater the proportion of that we should start releasing for the kingdom. So if you're a follower of Jesus and you've been giving a certain amount, my encouragement to you is to start increasing it. Ask yourself, am I giving in proportion to the amount that he has blessed me with? Maybe that's a single step forward for you that's going to step into more freedom, newness of life, being renewed in this dimension of your life. Because you see, for many people, probably more than most countries in the world, our income levels are high enough that we could give away 10% of that. Certainly what you are giving now, and we could probably give away even 10% and still satisfy every demand of the tyrant. We still have so much money left over to go to any entertainment we want to, to buy whatever decorations we want to, to go to the best restaurant that we feel like doing, to upgrade our computers and our cameras and our clothing whenever we need them. The tyrant has not even been touched. And one of the reasons why God commands us to give in keeping with our income proportionally rather than percentage-wise is that it needs to be high enough that we start killing the tyrant in our life. And for each person, that's different. So get into a dialogue with Jesus about that. He's living, by the way. That's why you can go to him and talk to him about these things. Have you ever considered making your budget in an attitude of prayer? Have you ever considered reviewing your actual expenses compared to your budgets? Have you considered asking questions like, what proportion of my income am I giving? Is it in keeping with my income? And making those things a subject of prayer. Those might all be ways in which you might want to experience the newness of life in this area. One last objection, and with that we're finished. There might be some people here who might say, but you know, Sundar, all that makes sense, except I don't have much. And I understand that. I'm one of those people who lost their job. I'm one of those people who has spent so much money on medical expenses. I just don't have enough. I've been taken advantage of. I've made poor decisions in the past. I, I can barely take two ends to meet. What should I do? You know, I don't know, but let me tell you a story. Way back in 1961-62, in the country of Canada, there was a young man who was being called to go to the mission field. He wanted to go to China. But he couldn't go because he couldn't get medical clearance to go to China. There was something wrong with his chest. Anyway, so he surrendered that dream. Now, what happened very shortly after that was he was healed. He was miraculously healed. And so the vision to go across the world and serve somewhere else, sharing the good news of Jesus, especially with younger people, young adults, because he used to work with Youth for Christ at that time, was very much alive. Only this time, the country he was wanting to go to was the country of India. And so he looked for opportunities to share. No opportunities would open up. Finally, at the Youth for Christ annual convention in Winona Lake, somebody said to him, we'll give you five minutes to share your vision. Talk about five minutes to share a vision. Anyway, the man almost forgot and gave him two minutes. 
So he talked about it. And he had a young family of three. And in those days, you didn't hop on a plane. You took a ship. You went on a ship from uh, New York all the way to Bombay, India. So he shared that need. Nothing happened. The next day, a lady came to see him. She had five children. She said, my husband just died. He left me with an inheritance of $2,000 for my children. Jesus will take care of me. I want to give you these $2,000 to go to India. That man came to India and it was in his home that I became a follower of Jesus and many, many other young men and women. And I often wonder, one day when this woman sees me and a whole lot of other people, what joy awaits her. She didn't have much. But like that widow that Jesus talked about, she gave everything she had. Talk about freedom. That's the freedom that God has in mind for you and me. Bayview Glen Church, let this be the first huge step towards renewal because Jesus is alive.